0: A lot of the uh, institutions in society that are supposed to protect people are not doing that for people of color, for women, uh, for, for other minorities. And that's where you have, again, the structural issue. It's not personal, though, of course, it feels very personal, but it's not only personal. It is rooted in structures that allow these inequities to keep happening.
1: Hi, my name is Rick Langer, and I'm a professor at Biola University in the Department of Biblical Studies and Theology, and I'm also the director of the Office of Faith and Learning. I would like to welcome you to the Winsome Conviction
2: podcast, which I co-host with my colleague, Tim Yolkoff. Tim? It is great to have you guys listening. Uh, We've done a segment in the past called Coming Up to Speed. We did one on politics with Dr. Joy Qualls. That seemed to make sense as we were heading into an election year. And then we brought in the Reverend James White, an old friend of mine, uh, to bring us up to speed on race. Today, we're going to tackle a topic that people talk about. Certainly, the phrase isn't new, but wonder what it's all about and that would be feminism Uh, one of the treats of this rick is uh, you get to bring on guests that you kind of knock it off your bucket list and this is our guest today is dr julia wood Um, dr wood taught at unc chapel hill for 38 years Uh, Her focus was on personal relationships, intimate partner violence, feminist theory, and the intersections of gender, communication, and culture. She has written or edited over 20 books and 70 articles on these topics. For me, two books stand out. One, Communication Theories in Action and Introduction. I've used that book, Rick, ever since I've taught communication theory. I think it's one of the finest introductions to communication theory. And then my all-time favorite um, book that our uh, guest has written is called Gendered Lives, Communication, Culture, and Gender. It is in its 13th edition. It is one of the finest textbooks I've ever come across. And no, I don't, I'm not getting a kickback to say <laughs> any of this. And, but Dr. Wood has also written uh, groundbreaking articles in journals. Uh, one of them was Telling Our Stories, Narratives as a Basis for Theorizing Sexual Harassment. Uh, This was long before the Me Too movement, but Dr. Wood realized that this is happening within our discipline and needs to be addressed. She also wrote an article, The Normalization of Violence in Heterosexual Romantic Relationships, Women's Narratives of Love and Violence, She also wrote an article, Monsters and Victims, Male Felons, Accounts of Intimate Partner Violence. Uh, Listeners know I've been teaching self-defense at domestic violence shelters here in Orange County, and Dr. Wood's insights have been invaluable. Well, her work has garnered attention, no doubt. Uh, She has earned over 30 honors I think I've earned one. So, thirty <laughs> honors and awards for her work, work including the Council for Advancement and Support for Education Award for Professor of the Year at North Carolina, Gender Scholar of the Year, and George H. Johnson Johnson Prize for Lifetime Achievement. However, her greatest claim to fame—I can't wait to hear this. Go ahead, Tim. Her Rick, greatest claim her to fame. I'd like to hear it. Go ahead. Claim to fame is she was my MA thesis director. And my dissertation director for my time, all my graduate education was at UNC Chapel Hill. And in our last book, Rick, Winsome Conviction, I dedicated my section to the three people who have taught me the most about education, and Dr. Julia Wood was at the top of the list. So it's so fun to be able to introduce a scholar, an activist, a friend for over 20 years. Dr. Julia Wood, welcome to our podcast.
0: Well, thank you. And th- thank you for being my greatest achievement. Jim. <laughs> <laughs> and I are it, <laughs> it's a dirty job, but somebody had to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true.
2: No, uh, uh, Julia, it has been such a treat to be under your tutelage. And you are this amazing scholar that just doesn't keep it in the classroom. But your activism, your volunteering Uh, is really a model for us in in higher education. And we're just honored. We know that you're retired. We're just absolutely honored that you'd be part of our small little podcast and
0: help with this topic. So
2: sincerely, thank you.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. You know, this is is fun for me to talk about things that I'm passionate about.
2: Well, we thought we'd start with a, a simple question, but one that really needs to be asked. How would you define feminism?
0: That's a great starting point. Uh, I mean, there are so many definitions of it. Um, But, I mean, the word literally means uh, political stance about women. Uh, And what it means to me is that I believe that all living beings uh, deserve respect and equal treatment. So I've never understood why it's such a devilish thing for some people to embrace that, for instance, men and women are equal. Uh, and I think that's the core of feminism as I understand it.
2: Boy, that's tremendous. And, and wouldn't you add to this? Uh, I've read in your book, Gendered Lives, you said in its broadest definition, it's also an opposition to oppression.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because once once you accept equality among among living beings, then you're not going to oppress one another. You, you can't once you decide they're, they're
2: your equals. Oh, that's great. Um, Julia, uh, one thing that I learned, and again I'll confess my ignorance, and I think this is why this is just a great topic. Is I was a mature follower of Jesus when I came uh, to UNC Chapel Hill, and I had I had read broadly on certain issues. But when you, in your class that I was a TA, talked about the three waves of feminism, I, I will just confess my utter ignorance that here I was as a, a mature Christian, but I did not know about the three waves. And so we would love for you to kind of bring us up to speed on the three waves. So concerning the first wave, uh, would you explain that a little bit, the waves, and then who are the major figures we should know about when it comes to the first wave and then maybe even sprinkle in Seneca Falls?
0: Okay. Uh, The first wave is dated. Well, first of all, when most people think about feminism, if they do at all, they think about uh, the 1960s and beyond, but that was really the second wave. And there was a whole century of uh, activism and effort for equality before that. The first wave started in about 1840, as some women were realizing that they had no voice in the life of their country, their communities, they had no property rights, and so forth, and that they needed to have the vote in order to have those rights. So in 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention happened, and that was the convention at which uh, women uh, and some men, there were about about a third of the people who signed this uh, Seneca Falls uh, Convention, uh, who signed onto it, were men. Uh, but they, it was for the right to vote, to own property, and so forth. But it was interesting because at Seneca Falls, they took the Declaration of Independence, which says, starts off, all men are created equal. And they say, we believe that all men and women are created equal. And so that was the beginning of the Declaration of Sentiments that was the key document there. And then it took uh, 70-some years after that convention in 1848 for women to actually get the right to vote, which they did in 1920. And so by 1925, we say it's pretty much the end of that first wave. Now, let me say one other thing. Uh, the, the key issues in the first wave were, were basic civil liberty, c- civil rights, so the right to vote, the right to have higher education, to mm-hmm. have access to it, and the right to uh, own property. Once women married prior to this, once women married, they lost their property rights because they belonged to their, their husbands just as the women did. So those were the key issues in the first wave.
1: And back to the theme of uh, Tim and I's ignorance on these things uh, was how um, standard, so to speak, were the property rights and things like that in the states? Because when I think of, you know, the the United States before civil war kind of times, it seemed more federal in the sense of states having greater autonomy and differences. How was that relative to, uh, you know, the the various civil rights that you're uh, describing here from the first wave of feminism?
0: Well, there was some variation among states, but women basically did not have rights. They were not full citizens any more than blacks were at that time.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I read a a quote from Schopenhauer, the German intellectual, who said, um, women are the perfect caretakers of children because, in essence, they are a child. They are an adult child. They are not equal to the true human who is the man. And that I, pretty much sums it up. That's what women were fighting yeah. about. And that is stunning to see in a quote, Julia. And then I make the comment, obviously, this man was not dating much, right? I mean, <laughs> with that kind of attitude. But, but, but to, for, for my students to see it and read it and to say, you got to be kidding me. And it's like, that's what women were fighting against in yes. the first wave.
1: Yeah, yeah I think there's yeah. similar quotes like that from Sigmund Freud as well. Mm. Um, hmm that I mean, it's one of those indicate. I mean, you can blame I'm I'm German by heritage, and you can blame lots of nasty things on German academics. But one of the interesting things is seeing how this becomes pervasive. It isn't just one outlier or something like that, but there's like a a current, a drift, uh, ocean, whatever you want to call it. It's um, you
2: yeah. know prevailing sentiment. It seems so. Julia, it it, oh, it go was
0: ahead. the culture at that time. It truly was. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. So, Juliet, with with looking at this first wave, then we I mean, it's not hard to conclude that the first wave is still happening in many parts of our world.
0: Yes, in in many parts of the world where women still do not have basic civil rights. Yes, it is still happening. In the U.S., we've moved a bit beyond that. Uh, We still don't have the kind of equality that, that I dream about, but we have moved beyond it. But there are places in the world where that isn't the case at all.
2: And what's so interesting about this, Julia, um, and what was shocking to me when I was at UNC Chapel Hill is when I when I learned about the first wave, it, it was so obvious to me that Jesus was a first wave feminist. Oh,
0: he would have been for
2: sure. Oh, and, and, and the reaction that I get from some other uh, Christians is like, oh, what do you mean by that? Because they immediately transpose it into third wave feminism, or maybe even aspects of second wave. but I'm saying, no, 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 I'm just talking about first wave feminism. And you know, I shared with you once before what James, one of the earliest books of the New Testament, he distills true religion in the sight of God. And he says, caring for orphans and widows in distress. And that, that
0: weren't,
2: yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
0: Julie. No, I'm just going to say that would be exactly right. And for people who are oppressed generally, uh, Jesus stood against those things.
2: Yeah, and so for me, I wrote an essay called Jesus the Feminist, which was kind of a catchy uh, title. And uh, but, but to me, it's like it's just obvious that and, – and isn't it true that a lot of the early first-wave feminists were Christians, would self-identify as Christians?
0: Oh, absolutely. We had some very strong Christians. Um, we had uh, – some were very conservative Christian groups. Uh, Frances Willard is probably the best-known. She was with the Women's Christian Temperance League – And they were fighting for temperance because alcohol led to violence in families, but they were also realizing that they needed the right to vote to fight for temperance. And what I love about that is
2: it wasn't a selfish motive. It wasn't like, hey, I just want raw power. But it's because they were interested in the temperance movement. They were interested in helping other
0: people, but had no political voice to do that. Right. And some of those, such as uh, Francis Willard, they were also very much against slavery because that broke up families. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they were fighting those battles. But without a voice, without a political voice, it's very hard to be successful in the fight.
2: Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's such a, such a good point to say how – and again, because you and I are both in communication theory – uh, I love that that phrase by Rural Howe, who says, all words are riddles that have to be unpacked. And I think as mm. Christians, we're so quick to say, oh, I know what feminism is. That's the 1960s. That's bra burning, which I can't wait for you to tell the story how that never actually happened. Um <laughs> But but, but they immediately kick it into their field of reference, which is what we mean when we say communication is systemic, right? It goes right into your field of interpretation. And so it's so important to clarify terms when we're talking about terms.
1: And I think that's one of the lurking problems in this and many other discussions we have today. I mean, you have similar discussions about race where I worry about the definitions people are using of the term racism or racist when I hear them talking past each other, and the same thing can happen with, you know, <laughs> feminist or feminism. If we if we yeah. aren't talking about the same thing, there's no surprise that we disagree, yeah. even if we yeah, might have disagreed absolutely.
0: anyhow. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, we might, in many cases, we might disagree. Um, there, there, there's a lot of room to, uh, to parse out different views of feminism, uh, but let's, let's at least get ourselves on the same terminology terminological grounds so that we can decide what we're arguing about.
1: Yeah. I I have a saying, I I say one of the great accomplishments is achieving disagreement that you actually know what the other person's saying. So you can go, Oh, okay. I either agree or disagree. And until you can state it in the way that the other person says, that's what I mean, you have no idea what they mean. So you don't know
0: if you disagree. That's wonderful, Rick. I I love that.
2: Mm -hmm. And let me just plug one of your books, Julia. That is, I I mean, I was going to talk about all the ones i love but then we wouldn't have a podcast we would never actually get to julia wood i would just talk about our books but this reminds me of your book understanding the misunderstanding Uh which was just so helpful in understand okay where are we missing each other and you do a great job of unpacking content relational rules and, oh, I'm sorry, constitutive rules. And so what Rick is saying is so good is, hey, I think we should just have a definitional moment. Like when you say critical race theory, like what do you mean by that? And when you say progressive or Democrat, Republican, when I first got to UNC Chapel Hill, people would ask me, are you a Christian? And I said, well, first you tell me what you mean by that. And they good said, point. Yeah oh, I know how you vote, I know you body I say, okay, then I'm not a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> so, Julie, can you talk just for a second about one of the heroes of the second wave? Um, it, I, I'm sorry, first wave.
1: And actually, before you do that, when I when you were describing this, you were saying kind of the idea that the uh, first wave was wrapping down, so to speak, around 1925 or sometime like that. Yeah. We associate the second wave with 1960 and Gloria Steinem and bra burning, which apparently didn't happen, but we'll hear that in a second. Was it were things quiet in between? You know, those intervening forty years, or what was happening during that time?
0: Well, you have to look beyond feminism to see what was happening. We had two world wars going on. Mm. Yeah, and I, they, I do uh, remember that. A lot of the country's attention. You'll have to understand. <laughs> uh, so that that was going on. And actually, you remember old Rosie the Riveter, uh, women to get out and get in the factories and build the things to keep the boys safe while they were fighting the good wars. And uh, women women were doing the work that they had been told they couldn't do and they were not qualified to do. They were doing it all of those years. And then when the wars were over, there was this period of really um, sort of a domestic tranquility and a real... um, a domesticity that was deeply knit so that the men came home from these horrible wars. The women were told then you don't need to work in factories anymore. Go back home. The jobs were given to men, but then we had the huge baby boom, you know, as people wanted to resume the lives that they had been fighting for in those wars, that the kind of life they had been fighting for was what they wanted to live. And so that went on for a number of years. And then it was in, Uh, a number of women, particularly white middle-class women, were getting very frustrated with their lives because after 25 years or so, they had raised their children. The children had flown the nest. They were still in their 40s or early 50s. They were young. They had a lot of life left to live, and they had all these structural barriers preventing them from doing things outside of the home. And it was at that point that a key feminist figure stepped in. Her name was Betty Friedan, and she wrote The Problem That Has No Name. That was a book published in 1963 that is credited with kind of launching that second wave because so many women read it and said, that's exactly what it is. Mm. I thought it was just my problem that I felt (laughs) unhappy and I felt unfulfilled at home. But all my friends have the same problem. It's not about me. It's about something in society.
1: And so that became a trigger point out of a whole set of cultural things that had risen up. That was sort of a flashpoint that that right. raised the consciousness, so to speak. Right. Okay, right, right.
2: And then, Julia, the guilt associated with that, right, for many of these women is what struck me is, look, you're, you've you got a house, you, you have kids, you got a husband who dotes on you, you have, uh, who are you to complain in post-World War II America with all the affluence? And these poor women were guilt-ridden, like, what is wrong with me? i am living what i'm told is the american dream and i'm exactly. unfulfilled
0: hmm. yeah yeah there were so so they really had two problems they had this problem of feeling unfulfilled and then the problem of guilt about feeling unfulfilled because they were told they had everything they were supposed to want um, and like and and you know let, let's be really clear here most of those women loved their homes loved their families loved their children and wanted a life that was in addition to that. Not instead of it, but mm-hmm. in addition to it, just like the men that they loved wanted. Yeah.
2: <clears throat> so let me tell a personal story real quick, Julia. So you know, you know wonderful Noreen, my wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> yes. So she was nervous to meet you because she was like, oh my gosh, this is the Julia Wood and <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I mean, that, that's what Noreen did early when we had three kids, and she has always commented at, at how at home she was because you absolutely affirmed that here is a, a sharp, brilliant woman who's choosing to stay home, and you just said to her, Noreen, I think that's wonderful. I think that is absolutely commendable that you were choosing to do that in this season of your life. And so I love what you said. It wasn't instead of, but, but women wanted more than just. They didn't want to get rid of it, but but they wanted to add to it, and there was nothing wrong with that.
0: Exactly. exactly. And at that time, women, there were no laws to protect women in the workplace. Uh, if a woman got pregnant, as my mother did when she was married, she was fired because you couldn't be a mother and uh, a professional. Mm. There were no laws to protect her. There were no laws to protect any women. Uh, there was rampant job discrimination. You know, incredible sexual harassment. Long before the Me Too movement, there wasn't even a name for it when the second wave started. Mm. So, the 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 changes we fought for in the first wave were great, but not sufficient to let women really begin to lead lives. On an equal par with men. And that's what the second wave was about Qu- trying to get at a different level of inequality, especially in the workplace and in the financial world. Women couldn't even get a charge account in their own name. I had to get my sweetheart in 1976 to sign oh. that he would accept responsibility for my bills. Now he doesn't anymore.
2: <laughs> <laughs> an entirely different I not question, get any though, right? In my own
0: name. <laughs> yeah.
2: Is that what Ferdinand meant when she said the problem is political?
0: It is absolutely political. She meant it's not just personal. It's rooted in political or structural matters. When there are laws that prevent women from ha- having access to financial, like a loan for a, a home uh, yeah. or a car, then, then that prevents them from being able to move ahead in life. This, these are laws. They're, they've got to be changed. There were no laws against sexual harassment. That certainly interfered with a lot of women's ability to work and to learn to the extent it was happening in schools.
2: Well, and and uh, that's what the Me Too movement really showed us, was like you could have male and female actors, but what the women <laughs> have to go through in corporate life as well as in the arts, I think so many of us were just shocked at the depth of, uh, of the sexual harassment uh, and again we're seeing with you know we're not going to do politics but you're seeing with uh, cuomo uh, you know these these yeah. stories and, and again we can go hey we can go left right on this one we can do equal time on the left right there there'll be no shortage of people accused of sexual harassment right kavanaugh and and everything like that but it's just it makes you realize that women are playing under different set of rules
0: they, they absolutely are. Now, we've changed some things, but you still keep seeing here are the barriers to full participation and equality in the world.
1: Let me pick up on the the. Uh, we made a quick jump there from uh, Betty Friedan in 1963 to the uh, hashtag Me Too movement and whatever it mm-hmm. was, 2017, 2018, whatever that yeah. kind of hit. Uh it strikes me in my foggy knowledge of these things that we moved chronologically from probably what we would call second wave feminism to third wave feminism mm-hmm. by the time we get to 2018. Yet on the other hand, it seems to me that hashtag me too movement would actually be classed with second wave feminism, or am I mistaken about that? In other words, I mean, I'm not su- surprised that everything wouldn't have been worked out. I'm just trying to get my bearings straight on these issues.
0: Well, some issues have um, reverberated throughout two or three waves of feminism. For instance, reproductive justice was an issue in first wave, in second wave, it's an issue in third wave. Uh, certainly sexual harassment on the job and date rape and rape in general became issues in the second wave that have not yet been settled. We got some laws passed, but enforcing them and making it um, – Uh, Unacceptable to do these things. That's the third wave is picking up on that to carry that particular issue forward.
1: I, because I remember when when these accusations came out, and particularly since so many were concentrated in Hollywood, which we would view to be a bastion of progressiveness, um, you know, in terms of the overall Mm -hmm. political environment. There was a part of me that I was reading these things and just going. I can't believe this is happening in 2018, that we're thinking this is somehow okay. And the stories that they're telling, some are from the past, but an awful lot were from you know a few years earlier or you know yeah. maybe 10 years earlier. It just seemed, it didn't seem to matter. Was this from 20 years ago, 10 years ago, or two years ago? It seemed like it was kind of the same stories. Okay. And that, that I found jarring, I guess, that that would go on at that level um, this long after so many of these laws had been changed.
0: Right. Well, you've got laws and then you have enforcement of them mm. there you know, and, and until there is a real um, consistency across people who who have the power to enforce or not. You know, then then the laws alone are not sufficient to take a quick aside. You can look at some of the horrible things that have been happening um, with police misconduct. OK, that's happening now. And we have laws against that, right. but the people who are enforcing it are not doing their jobs. So there has to, there we, so we can't let go of those issues until we truly get them resolved.
2: Mm. Boy, that's, yes. Uh, um, I t- so I mentioned I teach uh, self-defense at domestic violence shelters and, and uh, one jarring moment came when I was speaking to a group of women and I said, so when a police officer comes, just know that he's generally, um, on your side, huh. and, oh, Julia. Are you-
0: <laughs> <laughs> what color were the women? Tim? <laughs> What's that, Julia? What color were the women?
2: Oh well, they're mixed. It was a mixed group, but I tell you, one white woman uh, just said that, Tim. That's BS. And she didn't use the abbreviation. (laughs) Do do you know, Julia, that she was so disturbed with how the abuse that was done to her by her husband was allowed to happen through the court system? She went and got her degree in law to help women fight in the courts because she said the courts are not pro-women.
0: Good for her. She's right. She's right. Yeah. Too often they're not. I won't make a broad brushstroke. Too often they're not. And too often the the police are not pro-women and too often a lot of the uh, institutions in society that are supposed to protect people are not doing that for people of color, for women, uh, for for other minorities. They're just, um, and that's where you have, again, the structural issue. It's not personal, though of course it feels very personal, but it's not only personal. It is rooted in structures that allow these inequities to keep happening. And Julie, let me
2: just point out one thing for my listeners very quickly is, so what I have admired about you over the years is not only your content, because that's impeccable, but notice what you just did, I want my listeners to hear. You just said, now listen, I don't want to paint with too broad a brushstroke here. When talking about uh, police or talking about the judicial system, you're so good at qualifying what we call stereotypes. And I've always noticed that you are are quick to say, yeah, I don't I don't want to demonize everybody. I'm not putting everybody in that. There are notable exceptions, and I think that is such a good word for us in today's argument culture that let's be very careful how broadly we paint with these brush strokes. <laughs>
0: Yes. 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 I mean, I think it's very easy to fall into that trap of all police officers are bad. The courts are bad. Men are bad. Women are good. I mean, none of that's true. You know, it's just, you know, you, you've got to understand that we're, we're, we're uh, that there, are, there is a range on anything, and, and that includes any group you want to point to. So thanks for pointing that out, to Yeah.
1: So give us a quick description of third wave feminism, key issues, key theorists.
0: Wait a minute, I want to sneak back one minute to something <laughs> sure. both of you brought up. That, that's the bra burning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, oh, yes, we yes. didn't
1: get that. Okay. Yep. All
0: right. This is the second wave thing. And people still talk about those bra burning feminists. And the truth of the matter is bras were never burned, it never happened there had been a thought among some of the feminists who were protesting, uh, I think it was a Miss America or a Miss Universe patch. I think it was Miss America. They were protesting it and all the ways in which women are made to be sex objects and so forth. And they talked about maybe getting a freedom trash can and starting fires and, uh, no, and putting their bras and girdles and things like that in. It. They never did it. They talked about it and tossed the idea out. But it became one of the emblematic things um, Labels applied to second wave feminism that they were bra burners. And yeah, we just never did it.
1: I so I mean I grew up in the sixties. That was one of those phrases. No question. That was uh, you know that was in in the wind so to speak.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it, it was widely accepted and still is. You still you still occasionally hear it. And it's like, oh, I get tired of correcting that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Julia Wood, thank you so much for carving out the time to help us get up to speed on an important topic and movement like feminism. And we're just so grateful that you take time and do that. So, Julia, thanks
0: for the conversation. I enjoyed it.
1: And I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us here at the Winsome Conviction Podcast. We'd love to have you become a regular listener by subscribing at Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to check out the winsomeconviction.com website for more resources, articles, information on cultivating convictions, holding them deeply, and conversing with each other in ways that honor our difference but avoid dividing our communities. That's really what we're all about here. So thanks again for joining us.